Okay, it is good to be back with you. Um, it's going to be a great run, I hope, as we get to know each other a little bit better. I know your faces, I know a lot of your names, now I just got to keep the faces and the names straight with each other. But it'll come, it'll come with time, and I look forward to getting to know you a, a little bit better. And this morning, I want to I start a journey with you. I want to invite you into a journey with me through uh, one of my favorite books of the New Testament. It is intensely practical, very action-oriented. In fact, it may have been, a lot of people think it may have been the very first piece of literature that was written, one of the first books, first letters that's in the New Testament. Now you say, well, how's that so? Well, the Gospels, the stories were told, but they haven't been put down on paper yet. The history of the church, Acts, and what was going on there, it was happening, but it had not been written down yet. And this letter seems to emerge as one of those first pieces of advice and admonition about how the Christian life could be lived. It was the first to put pen to parchment. Uh, so it could have been that this was, if not the first, at least one of the first words that was circulated among the churches to help give them direction, and especially focused on a lot of the challenges that the church real quickly began to face. And I think it helps us when we think about the challenges that we endure. In fact, it is so practical that what I like to think about this book as is blue jeans theology. It's just kind of the workaday idea of what the Christian life is, is all about. Uh, when I filled in with you back during the summer and came here, I, like a lot of places that you go to, you're not really exactly notice sure what to wear. Now, that may seem kind of weird, but when you come in, you, you, you always... Every church is different. So I, I'm, not a real, I'm not a real formal guy. I'm, I'm kind of, you know, semi-formal casual. I don't know. You could ask, ask Carol what I am. But so I, I started out business casual, and then I kind of moved over to blue jeans, and somebody here stopped me and said that they were glad I'd gotten the dress code <laughs> because, because I think uh, this is the kind of place that doesn't just live inside stained glass windows because you don't have stained glass windows. <laughs> But you really are interested about how you live your life out in the nitty-gritty, hands get dirty, uh, knees down in the mud kind of existence. And so I, I, I like that phrase, blue jeans theology. It's kind of how we understand about God and about ourselves and what we ought to do in our everyday work away, get our hands dirty life. In fact, some people think about this book of James that we're going to be looking at uh, as almost like some of the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. The wisdom literature, a thing like Proverbs, where you've got all this kind of practical advice about how you ought to live, or the, the lyric beauty of Psalms, or, or the Song of Solomon, or Ecclesiastes, just down-to-earth stuff about how you live. And the opening line of the book, the letter of James, opens and just says, James, the servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. No pedigree, no resume, just James. Here I am, the humble servant of Jesus Christ. Well, you kind of wonder, and it helps us as we're setting this up. I'll give you a little more introductory material this time, and then we'll, we'll just kind of dig right in the text the rest of the, the, rest of the time when we come along. Uh, there were at least about four Jameses that we know something about in the New Testament. Two of them were apostles of Christ. One was a father of an apostle, 
and then there was this other one. Now, the two, the two that were the apostles, one of them died an early martyr's death, probably before this could ever have been written, so unless he wrote it from the dead, it wasn't, it wasn't him. The other was a little obscure in the dad of the apostle. We don't really know much about him, but this James, who is thought to be the half-brother of Jesus, is traditionally the one that conservative scholars think is the one who, who wrote this letter. Now, it might surprise you to think, a brother of Jesus. Wasn't, wasn't Jesus, uh, in a very miraculous way, uh, conceived by God, the Holy Spirit with Mary, and, and wasn't that it? But if you look in Matthew or in Luke, you get a cue that there seemed to have been some other family members that had come along the line, that there were some natural-born children that Joseph and Mary had after that. In fact, James, this James, seems to be the oldest of four brothers, and there were some sisters too. Unfortunately, like a lot of life, the women did not get uh, the notice that they probably deserved in here, so we don't know anything about them, but we know that there were these four brothers. One was named James, evidently the oldest, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, who also went by the shorter name Jude, and he wrote one of the little short letters that we have in the New Testament. Now, you might think that if you grew up with Jesus, you would appreciate Jesus. Do you? See, so you're, you're all ahead of me, and I haven't even gotten to that point. Those of you that have brothers and sisters, do you appreciate your brothers and sisters? Yes and no, right? <laughs> you, know, you know an awful lot about them. It would have been tough to have been brothers and sisters of Jesus, even if it was at a, a half relationship, I think. And to be honest, it looks like they had some challenges uh, really, really getting along with each other. In fact, on one occasion... The brothers came to Jesus, and, and they said, you know, it's not exactly what they said. This is sort of what they said. We don't think you're doing this exactly right, and here's our best advice about what you ought to do at this point. And Jesus, he didn't say this either, but it was sort of like, thank you very much. I got this. I think that was kind of maybe what was, what was going on. But John makes this interesting little side comment about that incident. John 7, verse 5, he said, even his own brothers did not believe him. Hmm. They're, they grew up with him, but it, it was an overwhelming thing, and so they're trying to figure out, figure out what's going on. But now this, this firstborn, this natural son, seems to be the one that authored this book that we're going to walk through. And he also became a prominent leader in the early church in Jerusalem, where the whole church got started. Well, what happened? How, how did this, I don't know, frustrated brother or skeptical brother suddenly become this ardent believer and finally a leader in the, in the church. Well, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, describes, Paul describes some of the post-resurrection appearances, where Jesus went, who he saw after he was raised from the dead, and he says he appeared to Peter and then to the 12, and after that to more than 500, all at the same time. And then, interestingly, it says, then he appeared to James. Special, one-on-one -on -one with, uh, with James. Now, seeing somebody come back from the dead again, even if it was a brother that you didn't always get along with, would have a pretty profound effect, I think, on your life. And I think it was a gracious act on Jesus' part to this, to this oldest half-brother to say, here I am, I'm, I'm alive. I, wanna, I want you personally to know this. 
And the other brothers got with it too because after the ascension, when they all got together, those that believed and they were celebrating what was happening in Acts while they were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come and everything, it says that all the other brothers, these other three who were along with James, were, were there in the room. They joined in that place, Acts 1, 14. And the faith and role of James just kept growing as he developed and, and led. When Peter was miraculously released from prison, you remember that funny time when the church was having prayer, having a prayer meeting because Peter was in jail? And he knocks on the door and the servant goes and says, oh, I can't be Peter. And it's kind of this back and forth. And finally Peter's like, let me in. Not like the big bad wolf, but it's like, you know, let, <laughs> let me in. And he finally gets in there and they've been praying for him to be released and he's released and they can't believe that he's released. And, but they have this big celebration. And then it says in Acts 12, 17, tell James and the brothers about this. Let James know that I'm here. Later on in Acts 15, there was this, council. They brought together a, a group of the church leaders. And they, they were trying to figure out what to do about Gentiles, about the fact that the gospel was spreading beyond just the Jewish family into the Gentile community. And it was raising some consternation amongst some of the folks there. And so they, they get together to have this uh, conferencing council. And Peter talks and Paul talks and Barnabas talks. And then it says in Acts 15, 13 and 19, when they had finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me, he said. It is my judgment that we should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. It sounds like he has some place of prominence in there. Here, here's, here's how I think we ought to, how we ought to settle this. In Acts 21, Paul brings back an offering from the Gentiles to the poor in Jerusalem who were really going through a tough time. It says, and Paul and all the rest, as they're bringing this gift, went to see James, and all the elders were present. Now, he'd made a, he had made a remarkable journey from skeptic to believer to leader. And so it's, in the, it's kind of with the background of what that experience was like in, for him coming to faith and rising as someone who was respected that we read his, his letter. Now, he never was thought of as an apostle. In fact, apostle usually has the sense of somebody that's sent. He was a stayer. He, he, didn't, he didn't leave Jerusalem. He stayed there in Jerusalem. In fact, uh, some would say he was, he's kind of like the prototype of the, uh, of the first pastor of a church. And you can see that reflected in his heart as he thinks about the everyday needs of the church that's there. Well, with that little bit of extra stuff, he just starts, introduces himself, and after one short sentence, he gets right down to business, and he starts dealing with trials and trouble. Or what I want us to think about today is faith under fire. He, he wants to talk to people that are struggling with some stuff in their setting and says, this is, this is how you ought to live, and this is how you ought to see these challenges in hard time. When my kids were growing up, I, I like to read to them. You probably have done that too. And, and one of my favorite writers is somebody whose name is Judith Yorst. You ever read any of her stuff? And one of her very favorite books, at least for me, is Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. Some of you, some of you read that one. If you've not, you, you will love it. Alexander, uh, the whole thing, picture book, it goes through and describes 
his very bad day in some very sad ways. Let me, let me just get, skim over it. He says, here, this is Alexander talking. He says, I went to sleep with gum in my mouth, and now there's gum in my hair. And when I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on a skateboard, and by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was running, and I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. At breakfast with his brothers, it got no better. Anthony, one of the brothers, found a Corvette Stingray car kit in his breakfast cereal box, and Nick found a junior undercover agent code ring. But in Alexander's own box, all he had was cereal. <laughs> I think I'm going to move to Australia, Alexander says. At school, Mrs. Dixon liked Paul's picture of the sailboat better than Alexander's picture of an invisible, ca invisible castle. At singing time, she said Alexander sang too loud. At counting time, she said he left out 16. He said, who needs 16? <laughs> he could tell it was going to be a terrible, no good, very bad day. There were two cupcakes in Philip Parker's lunch bag, and Albert got a Hershey bar with almonds, and Paul's mother gave him a piece of jelly roll that had coconut sprinkles on top. Guess whose mother forgot to pack a dessert? It was a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Then there was the after-school trip to the dentist, where with his brothers, they all had their checkups. Come back next week, Dr. Fields says, and we'll fix that cavity that you've got. Alexander says, no, I'm going to be in Australia. <laughs> on the way downstairs, the elevator close, door closes on Alexander's foot, and while he and his brothers are waiting for their mom to go get the car, Anthony makes Alexander fall in the mud. He starts crying in the mud, and Nick says he's a crybaby, and while he's punching Nick, the mom finally gets back and scolds him for being muddy and for fighting. He was having a terrible, no good, very bad day. And he told him that. Nobody even answered. They didn't even care. As if things couldn't get much worse, they, they went to pick up or his dad at the office, and among the things that he was not supposed to fool around with, and he'd been told not to fool around with, was the phone. He had to confess a little bit later, Dad, I think I called Australia. <laughs> his, his dad said, you guys, please don't come and pick me up anymore. It was a terrible, terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. There were lima beans for dinner. There was kissing on TV, and he hated both of those things. His bath was too hot. He got soap in his eyes. His marble went down the drain. He had to wear his railroad train pajamas, and he hated his railroad train pajamas. Oh, goodness. When he went to bed, Nick took the, back the pillow that he had said he could keep. His Mickey Mouse light went out, and he bit his tongue, and the cat wanted to sleep with Anthony instead of him, and it was just a terrible, no good, very bad day. And it, the book closes with this, this deep sigh by Alexander, to which his mom responds, well, some days are just like that, even in Australia. <laughs> now, I, I don't know. I don't know what you're... What's your life been like? Did anybody have a, a horrible, no good, very bad day somewhere in your not too distant past? Put gum in your hair and mud on your pants and forgetting 16. Boy, if that were only the least of our problems and challenges that we face in life. But what about the, the real serious grown-up trials and troubles that a lot of us face? When life just gets 
seriously bad. James wrote a letter to a church that was having anything but a good day. And he starts in verse 1 with these words. To the 12 tribes scattered, you need to underline that word in your head, to the 12 tribes, the Jewish people scattered among the nations. Now, it doesn't, doesn't just mean that they all took a vacation. They decided they would go visit somewhere. They were scattered because of the intense persecution that the church quickly came to experience. Acts 6 through 8, cue us in to some of what was going on. Stephen, Acts 6 and 7, becomes the first Christian martyr. It says that a great persecution broke out against the church of Jerusalem, and all except the apostles are scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, and as a result, it even pushed them further to the stretches of the earth. The text record says forces were set in motion to destroy the church. There were house-to-house -house searches, and both men and women were dragged off and put in prison. It was not a time of ease or comfort. Their property was seized. Their families were separated. Their survival was uncertain. The church and its believers were in a serious state of crisis. Now, if you were to get a letter at a time like that, what would you hope that the letter would say? Maybe words of reassurance, uh, some encouraging promise, sympathy, uh, whatever. But notice, here's how James talks to them as the very first thing that he says, quite surprisingly, verse 2 of chapter 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. I like the way Phillips translates this. He kind of he was kind of one of the first little paraphrasers. He says, when all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. Sure. <laughs> you know, come at me, friend. Good News Translation says, when all kinds of trials come your way, you should consider yourself fortunate. Well, isn't that great? Pastor Wacko here is sending a letter to this scattered church, and even though the song has not been written yet, he's saying, don't worry, be happy. <laughs> now, are we missing something here? What, what's going on? Is James missing something here? Does he not know how tough their life is? What does he mean? Consider it pure joy. Now, you also realize that this, this letter was not just written to the people back then, but it was written to us too. And so he's saying the same thing to us. Consider it joy. So in your most troubled moments, and he talks about trials of all different kinds. For instance, you lose your job, and you're two years away from being eligible for retirement. Here's the advice. Consider it pure joy. You find out you have cancer, and you might not have much time to live. Consider it pure joy. Your marriage goes bad. Your kids rebel. And your mother-in-law says that she's going to come and live in the house with you. Now, I know some of you guys are pretty good at that, so I'm not, no, no, I'm not, not to go for us. I figured that out. But you've got, you got everybody in the house. But some of us here 
that might not be the most joyful experience that we could possibly have. But he says, consider it all joy. And that's because most people root their idea of happiness in circumstance. In fact, the word itself, hap, the circumstance, whatever happens to be happening in your life. If things are calm and comfortable, that's the time to have joy. Uh, joy for us, a, a lot of times, comes to us when, not when things are falling apart, but when they're coming together. Like the time you hold your first grandchild in your arms, and not when your son or daughter calls and says there's some kind of heart abnormality that that sweet little kid has. Or times like when you're enjoying a vacation in Hawaii and the beaches. The water is just splashing up on your feet and you're just enjoying everything. Not the time when your mechanic tells you you're not going to be able to get your car out of your driveway anymore. Those aren't the times when we have joy. There's got to be something that we're not getting here of what he's having to say. And I don't think that, Joe, that uh, James is trying to, to say, what I want you to do is I want you to force a smile. You lost your job? Praise the Lord. Your teenage daughter, daughter is pregnant? Praise the Lord. Someone's about to foreclose on your, on your mortgage. Thanks so much. You just made my day. That's not, that's not, I don't think, what he's trying to say. There's something deeper here. Now, I wouldn't go so far as to say that it's easy to understand, but I do think that we have to understand that there's a lot more about life than happiness. Notice the choice of words. In this life council, he does not say Happiness. Now, it's translated that way sometimes, but that's actually not the way it's there because there are times in my life when I'm not happy. You, are you there? I mean, maybe you are right now. I mean, some of you are frowning already. I mean, it's just like you've had a, you've had a no good, very bad week or year or whatever it is. I can make a list for you of some of the stuff in, in my life too. So there must be something beyond just what's happening in us that he's got in mind here. This word joy has a deeper sense. In fact, I would suggest to you that joy is not a response to life. It is the attitude in which we face life. It is the way that we embrace how we're going to experience everything that happens to us. In fact, here's how James says it. He says, consider it all joy. Happiness, if you want to use that word, is a choice. You know, there's some people that in a marriage or some people at job or whatever, it's, I just, I, I just, I can't keep going. I, I just don't, I'm not happy. Well, circumstances don't always bring happiness, but joy is a choice. It's not a blind one, but it is an informed choice. In fact, somebody describes what James is saying here, I like, they say it's the joy directive. It's the thing that James and God calls us to do, even with its seeming irrationality. So maybe James isn't Pastor Wacko. Maybe, maybe there is something. And he helps us out by giving us a little bit, a couple, a couple things that I want to leave you with, hang, hang our, the rest of our thoughts on. Um, there, are some, there are some reasons why choosing joy makes sense. The first is, that he tells us that some of the stuff, the bad stuff that we experience in the life has a purpose. It has a purpose. Notice that he says in verse 3, because, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kind, 
because, there's another, that important word, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Now, when I was a kid, I would ask my parents a lot of times why. I like to ask questions. And sometimes, if you ever had a kid that asked you that long enough, what do you finally say? Just because. <laughs> you, ever, you, ever, you ever said that? You know, it's like, I don't, I'm the parent, you're the child, just because. But thankfully, James doesn't do that. He says because, but then he gives us some good practical reasons. And, and the first one is, he says, it develops perseverance. Or as somebody else has put it, trial is the stuff out of which God can make you strong. There's no child that learns to walk without falling down a whole bunch more than they walk. Now, kites rise against, not with, the wind. It is adversity lots of times and not prosperity that gives us our greatest opportunities for growth. Or to repeat that phrase, trial is the stuff out of which God can make you strong. Now, we live in an age where we want everything in a hurry. We, we even want fast, kind of like fast food faith, don't you? It's like, God, do it to me right now. Give it to me right now. Help me right now. And you just go through all that. And it takes time. And James is trying to tell us that these challenges of life, the troubles, the tests, the discipline, actually allow us the strongest development of our faith. Anybody run marathon in here? Anybody got any runners? Okay, you run a marathon? All right. Uh, did you have to prepare at all before you ran the marathon? You know, nobody except a fool gets up one day and says, I think I'm going to run a marathon. You don't get up on Sunday morning and say, flying pig, that sounds very interesting. I'll do that. I can run a mile. What's 25 more? You know, it's just kind of, that is not the way it works. So when James says, testing of our faith develops perseverance, he's saying that if you want to endure and stay in this race, you will go through some painful preparation, even maybe some discipline to get you in there. Don Anderson is a preacher who's an avid runner, and he likes to use this metaphor of, of the marathon or the race, and he talks about his, his training and one day that he experienced on a, on a cold day, which Fort Worth, Texas sometimes has, it was bone chilling, wind gusting, and he said that Fort Worth had its version of Heartbreak Hill, and he was running with a friend. And by the time he got to that spot in his training, and he was pushing it, he was getting close to the, to the actual run of the race. His quadriceps were screaming, his body was straining, uh, all the forward stride going there, and the wind was blowing fiercely in his face, as if it wasn't bad enough that he's climbing this hill, he's running against the wind. And he thought, you know, that, that really is a lot of what the Christian life is like. He said it's so often running uphill into the wind. Higher ground is the goal, but goodness, the ascents, the struggles, the detours, the successes, the failures, he says, the running into the wind. James reminds us in his book here, his letter, he says, actually, challenges, trials, troubles develop perseverance. They keep you going. They enable you to be able to finish. Somebody has called it heroic endurance. Is the goal of your life to have ease or strength? Do you want stamina? If you do, you're going to have to live with a whole lot of struggle. In verse 4, James says something more. 
He says, perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and lacking nothing. The Living Bible translates it this way. When the way's rough, your patience has a chance to grow. So let it grow. And don't try to squirm out of your problems, for when your patience is finally in full bloom, then you'll be ready for anything, strong in character, full and complete. Trials, whether they are sent by God or Satan, or they're just a part of the stuff of life, James says, have important purpose. Trials are the stuff out of which God can make you strong. Somebody has said, in adversity, we usually want God to do a removing job. But what he wants to do is an improving job. We consider it joy when we face our trials because he wants to work. Sounds like he's working on us right now up here. Right? <laughs> that, that's a very, very heavy woodpecker or somebody cutting down a tree or something. I, I don't know. So. <laughs> but he, he wants us to know no pain, no gain. Hebrews 12:11 talks about, it says, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but it's painful. Later on, however, he says it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those that are trained by it. Some of the strongest people I've ever known have gone through really bad stuff. Back in the uh, late 90s, not long after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, uh, or I guess mid-90s almost, or anyway, it was in the 90s, I made a lot of trips back and forth to Ukraine. I did some leadership development over there. Our church had a partnership uh, with a missionary that we'd sent that way. And there were, there were a lot of really impressive people when I was there, but there was one guy named uh, Pastor Ivan, Brat Ivan, Brother, Brother Ivan, they called him. He, was, he, looked like a, he, he looked like a Russian. He was a big guy, had big hands, a big, strong sort of guy. And he'd been the, the pastor of the, the mother church, um, the, the house of prayer, they, they called it during that day. And he'd, he'd been an engineer uh, early in his life, and he had a great job. And one day they found out that he was a believer, and they, they would do things like uh, over the PA system, you know, Ivan, coming in, he thinks he's a Christian. I mean, they just gave him terrible times. And finally they, they stripped him of that um, good job that he had, and he, and he ended up in prison. And they tried to get him to recant his faith, they even broke his feet. Finally, he got out and they let him work again, but he worked making brick in a factory and his hands were huge hands. I mean, they were, you could see the, the stuff that he had done. He had, he'd experienced countless indignities. And I don't think there was probably too many times in his life when he would look and say, well, boy, I'm really happy. But as I listened to his stories, I saw the depth of his joy. Something happened to him in that terrible experience of trial that made him strong, that gave him power, that, that gave him tenderness. Something good came out of something very bad. And it's our point of view, James says, that will have all we have to do with it. If in your life you don't ever want to have trouble, then you may not ever be very strong. You're going to have to look at life, James says, through different, different eyes. 
there's one last big point. There's, there's, there is purpose in our suffering, but there's also promise in our suffering. Verse 12, chapter 1. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Heard about a fortune teller who once after studying the palm of uh, a certain young man said, you will be poor and very unhappy until you're 37 years old. To which the man responded, well, after that what will happen? Well, I'd be rich and happy. He says, no, you'll still be very poor, but you'll be used to it by then. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I'm not suggesting that James is saying just suffer, 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 and there will come a point when you won't think about it anymore. But he does want us to know that suffering is temporary, that it doesn't last forever, that if it comes into our lives, it will not always be in our lives. C.S. Lewis was one time said, well, asked, why do the righteous suffer? And he says, why not? They are the only ones who can take it. We experience struggle in a different, deeper way. The joy may not be in the moment, but we see beyond and through it. Don Anderson, that guy, the runner that I was talking to you about a minute ago, I didn't tell you what happened when he was going up that hill. He's going up that heartbreak hill and was like, I cannot do it, I cannot do it, I cannot do it. And his friend helped him visualize what was going to be at the finish line at the top. And he says, he just kept going and going. And when finally they reached the crest of that hill, the day's first warming rays of sunshine, he said, touched his aching and shivering body and a pink pastel of dawn made the struggle suddenly worth it all. James says, after the clouds have covered your life, there will be glory. There will be a dawn. He doesn't say when, but it will be there. In fact, James speaks of it this way. He says, you will get a crown of life that will affect all those affinities. Isn't that a beautiful, not, not, a, not a crown of gold, not a crown of money, not a crown of houses, not a crown of, a crown of whatever, a crown of life. That's the reward, he says, for people who endure. That's the prize that awaits those of us who experience pain. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, Paul captures it beautifully. He says, we don't lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, the trouble, but on what is unseen, the glory that awaits us. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Hope waits for us at the finish line. This word crown that's used here is interesting. In the, in the New Testament, uh, it's stephanos uh, is, is, is the word. And if I take you back to Acts, verses 6 and 7, the first martyr who died for his faith that we have recorded was a guy named Stephen, stephanos. His name meant crown. Coincidence? I don't think so. Ultimately, the church's earliest believer's faith that was snuffed out was a man whose name was Crown. And as the stones were pelting his head and his life was ebbing out from his body, it says over in 
Acts 7, 5. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. The, the crowd just responded to that so violently and the stones on his head. And then finally, he says, James says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then, beautifully, it doesn't say, and he died. It says, he fell asleep. You ever had just a really, really, really bad day? And you were never so thankful in all your life to be able to close your eyes and to go to sleep. Even in the toughest moment of time, there is a crown. The Hebrew writer says of Jesus that he, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. I can get through this because I'm going to have that. There is no trial greater than God's promise. There is no challenge that's any stronger. With the eyesight of faith, we choose joy. Now, James is not telling us, and he's not telling these people just to shrug, struggle off. If I go back to what I said at the beginning, it's not like, hey, my house burned down, praise the Lord. No, that's, that's not it. Troubles are real. But he says, I want you to think of them. I want you to consider them. I want you to choose that your response to whatever comes into your life is joy. Johnny Erickson taught uh, as a young girl, jumped off a swimming dock into the Chesapeake Bay and broke her neck. And she ended up a quadriplegic for about 51, 52 years now. She's been in a wheelchair. She's had all kinds of things happen in her life. She, she's had cancers. There's a recurrence of some of that. She has trouble breathing. Uh, it just, it, it's unbelievable what she's gone to. But if you ever listen to her, if you ever hear what she has to say, she talks about her trouble, but she chooses joy. In fact, last year, late last year, she put together a video and she just, part of it she said, every day I am wasting away, but I am still on the growing side. Deep, great trials bring with them deep grace from God, all of which enlarges our soul's capacity for Jesus. And that's, she chooses the word, why I'm celebrating. But she could have just as well said, that's why I have joy. On the most terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day of your life, you get to choose how you respond to that trial. James' advice to you is for you to choose joy. Because however bad it is, it can have good purpose. And however bad it is, even if it's like Stephen falling asleep under the stoning of those that were putting him to death, there's a promise. Let's pray. God, for all that you've done for us and for your word that you open up to us in such uh, practical ways, I thank you for the writing of James. Thank you for what we can learn from that as we take a journey with him. I thank you for those that are here today and for 
the way they take in your word. And I pray that whatever happens to us this week, you remind us of what we've talked about this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.